Please turn to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 13 again. Our focus verses are going to be 6 through 13. The title to our message today is The Lamb of God Who Takes Away the Sin of the World. As you're turning there, please remember what the Bible says, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That sends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, just as your son was on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, and those two disciples were blind to how Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament, Lord, so we are blind. And so we ask for your spirit now, the spirit of Christ, to come and open up our eyes, explain to us these things that are here, that we might see that from beginning to end, it's been about your son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. We ask these things in his name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So if you are just now joining us, we find ourselves in the middle of the major crisis in the book of Exodus. The 10th plague has been threatened. The Lord pronounced his sentence that every firstborn in all of the land of Egypt was going to die. At midnight, the destroyer was going to do his work. But here's what we might miss. This sentence was not merely against the Egyptians, it was also against 
the Hebrews. As we've seen, the Israelites have been just as wicked, just as rebellious, just as idolatrous as the Egyptians. And this 10th plague, it levels the playing field. The message in Egypt right now is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death. And that is precisely the crisis in the world today, isn't it? This world is not divided up between good people and bad people. There's only one species of people in the world today, and they are sinners. And the sentence has already been passed. Death. The soul that sins shall die. And here in the Exodus account, God shows us the only remedy from that death sentence is substitution. A lamb for a life. Last week, our focus was seeing what type of lamb this had to be. Uh, Verse 5 says it had to be a male, a year old, uh, without blemish. This lamb, without question, we saw points to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the Son of God. He was born innocent, unstained from original sin, and he actually fulfilled all righteousness for us by his obedience to God, and he was cut down in the prime of his life. As Peter said, he is a lamb without blemish or spot. We saw that a substitute that is not perfect cannot save any, anyone. It's Jesus' perfect life that gives value to his death. And it's his death that we look to this morning. So, Three, three parts to our message. First, we're going to see the lamb who is our substitute. Second, the lamb who is our supper. And then thirdly, the lamb who satisfied God. So let's look first how the lamb is our substitute. Recall that verse 3 says that they were to bring this lamb into their home on the 10th day. Look at verse 6 with me. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Now, one of the reasons for keeping this lamb in their home for four days was so that they could identify with that lamb. Certainly, they saw that it was innocent and tender and kind. But the father of that home was in a very short time going to slit that lamb's throat. Why did it deserve such a death? That time period was partly so that they could identify with it, so they could see that that's what they deserve. The choice was clear. Either the lamb dies or the firstborn son dies. And verse 6 says that when the 14th day arrived, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now recall that The Hebrew term for congregation was first used to describe Israel back in verse 3. And and there I stress that uh, this was the birth of the nation of Israel. This was Israel's Independence Day, just like we're going to have our own Independence Day this week. But the primary importance of that word, congregation, um, was not political. It was ecclesiastical. It was religious. Israel was a nation, but... Scripture called her a congregation. 
in the same way that New Testament believers are called a congregation. Israel was the Old Testament congregation. She was the Old Testament church. And so here we see that it's the land, it's, it's the church that is killing the lamb. In other words, all of God's people, the church, the elect from every age, every nation is responsible for the death of the lamb. Please look at verse seven. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. So on the two vertical doorposts, they were to smear the blood and then the lintel, which is the horizontal doorpost. Look at what this blood is supposed to mean. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, Michael Morales says here that this blood, this blood by God's own instruction, wards off death because the blood signifies that the death of the firstborn has already taken place in the person of a substitute lamb. So that brings us then to our first principle this morning that, that Jesus... The Lamb of God is our substitute. He died so that we could live. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is our substitute. He died so that we can live. You see, dear congregation, that the Passover teaches us uh, the precious doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. That is a big term, but children... Boys and girls, uh, penal substitution is something that you can actually understand fairly easily. Imagine today you go, you go home from worship and your younger brother or younger sister uh, steals $100 from your mom's purse and then they lie about it. But of course, your parents soon discover the truth. What should happen to that sibling of yours? Well, they should be discipline, shouldn't it? They should suffer the, the penalty. Well, that is the penal part of penal substitution. Penal means a penalty. But then, remark, but then imagine that something remarkable happens. Imagine that your dad decides to pay back your mom plus 20% restitution, and he decides that he will take on the full penalty himself. He willingly puts himself in the place of your younger brother. That's the substitution part of penal substitution. It means to take the place of another. Penal substitutionary atonement is the precious doctrine that Jesus Christ put himself in the place of sinners, taking on the penalty that we deserved, which is death, so that we could live. This is the very heart of the gospel message. Jesus didn't die as some example of love. He died because we were in a bad place. This is the message of the Passover. 
God passed the sentence of death on all the firstborn, and Egyptians and Israelites were all under the sentence. But when the Israelites took their lamb into their home, they passed that sentence from themselves onto the lamb, and the lamb became the penal substitute. And this is the message of the New Testament over and over and over again. When Jesus first arrived on the scene, what did John declare? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He said, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. This is what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. He says, For I delivered unto you that which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Or Romans 4, 25. He was delivered up for our trespasses. Dear congregation, this is what those regenerate Israelites believed when they killed that lamb. They weren't looking to the ceremony to save them. They didn't actually believe that the blood of this beast could atone. No, they were operating by faith. That's what Moses was doing according to Hebrews eleven twenty eight. that he sprinkled the blood by faith. It is simply a false doctrine to believe that the people in the Old Testament were saved by obedience to the law, and we in the New Testament are saved by the death and resurrection of Christ. What an insult to God to think that God could ever be satisfied uh, by the death of an animal for sinners. Listen to what John Calvin says here. The whole system of religion delivered by the hand of Moses pointed to Christ. This is exemplified in the case of sacrifices and ceremonies. For what could be more vain or frivolous than for men to reconcile themselves to God by offering him the foul odor produced by burning the fat of beasts or to wipe away their own sins by sprinkling themselves with blood? In short, the whole legal system, the whole law, is if considered by itself apart from the types and shadows of Christ is a mere mockery, end quote. Those regenerate Jews saw what that sacrifice represented. Uh, regardless of, of the finer details, what they may or may not have known, certainly they knew that God would take away their sins through a sacrifice that he would provide. How can we say that? Well, please turn to Genesis 3. We can say that because God has already established this pattern. God provided a sacrifice for Adam and Eve's sins. Did you know that? So after the fall, we know what God immediately told Adam and Eve. He immediately, before the curse was even spoken, he immediately promised them a savior, that the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. We just sang that. And then he immediately sealed that promise in blood. Look at Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam 
and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Where did those skins come from? They were animal skins. Where did they come from? From an animal. God killed an animal. And I absolutely believe that this animal was a lamb. Why? Because Jesus was the lamb of God who was slain from before the foundation of the world. How fitting would it be that the first animal slain would point to him? But there's more than this. Uh, Turn with me to to Genesis 22, 7 and 8. We, We just sang about this also. When Abraham was ascending Mount Moriah with his son Isaac to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. What did Isaac ask? Look at Genesis 22, 7 and 8. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? How did Abraham answer? Well, look at the next verse. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. See, when these Jews at Passover, these regenerate Jews, when they were slaying this lamb by faith, they were trusting that God would someday provide a sacrifice that would satisfy. What were they doing? They were looking forward to what Christ would do. Dear congregation, we're looking back at what Christ has already done. Both they and us have been saved by penal substitution. Both they and us have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. And that is the wonder of all wonders. I love how Michael Barrett puts it here. He says... The blood of Christ is the difference between heaven and hell. The blood of Christ is the difference between heaven and hell. None will be in heaven other than those saved by the blood. And none will be in hell who have already been saved by that blood. Dear congregation, you are not going to heaven because you consort with Christians. You're not going to heaven because you you come here on the Lord's Day or because you tithe or because you raise your children in the covenant. You're not going to heaven because of your good works. You're not going to heaven because you take care of the widow and, and the fatherless. You're not going to heaven because you vote biblically or because you exercise biblical citizenship. You're not going to heaven because you're reformed. You're going to heaven because all of your guilt and all of your sin was laid upon the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. You're going to heaven because he smeared that cross with his blood. And you have been guilty as hell, and so have I. Yes, you have been just like one of those Egyptians, but Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, stood in your stead and all of your sin and all of those things that you're ashamed of and all of your ruin was laid upon Him. Think about that, the millions and millions of sins that you've already committed and the millions more, if you don't die, maybe thousands, 
that are still waiting to be committed by you were laid upon him. You slayed the lamb with your sin and Christ took it. Christ took it all. He bore all of your iniquities. And now that destroyer can never touch you. And no plague can ever befall you. Don't you see that's why we sing those songs? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's our first point, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is our substitute. He died so that we will live. Let's look secondly at the Lamb who is our supper. I hope you see that this Passover Lamb is both a sacrifice and a supper. Look at verse 8. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Recall that when we opened the book of Exodus, it began with bitterness. Chapter 1, verse 14 says that Pharaoh and the taskmasters made Israel's lives bitter with hard service. These bitter herbs that they were to eat were certainly meant to remind Israel of the bitterness that God was delivering them from. And this unleavened bread here had a double significance. Leaven or yeast in Scripture is sometimes uh, signifies sin or corruption. Certainly, that's going to be the, the signification that's going to be brought out in our passage next time. But unleavened bread uh, also signifies the fact that they were leaving Egypt in haste, in a hurry. Uh, Deuteronomy 16, when it's looking back on this event, Moses says, you shall, know, uh, you shall eat no leavened bread with Passover. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for, because, this is why you're eating unleavened bread, because you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. And this hastiness is emphasized by the clothing they were to wear. Look at verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, with sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. Historians tell us that at this time they wore uh, long Robes which were loose uh, allowed them to be cool under the hot sun. So when they fastened their belt, they, they bunched up their robe, perhaps above their knees, signifying that they were ready for action. Uh, this meal was a meal to be ready for action. They had their, their loins girded. They had a staff in their hand. They had their shoes on their feet, which they wouldn't normally wear in their home. And it signified that Egypt was coming to an end. But Israel's Israel was just coming to a beginning. And so thus their clothing pointed to Passover being this prelude to victory. Christ was delivering Israel from the bitterness of slavery into freedom, into abundance, 
and into blessing. But let's look at the meal itself. Look at verse 9. How were they to cook it? Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water. Now, eating a, a lamb raw would have meant that it still had blood in it. We know that later Levitical law had forbid this, but what would this signify about Christ, a raw Christ? Well, a raw lamb is certainly dead, but it's not death that God merely required of this lamb. The full penalty for sin had to be paid. Our Savior did not merely die. Our Savior suffered the whole wrath of God. And that wrath of God in Scripture is typified as fire, a consuming fire. It seems to me that's why they were not allowed to boil the lamb. They had to see this lamb suffer under the consuming fire of God's wrath. Likewise, to eat it raw, uh, that is half-cooked, uh, would typify a half-atonement. A half-atonement. There's always the temptation throughout church history. The Judaizers uh, preached a half-atonement in the book of Galatians. Uh, this is the gospel uh, of the Catholics that the Reformers fought against in the 16th century, that, that Christ offers a half-atonement to you. This is the gospel that's often peddled today. Yes, you must believe in Christ, but you must also keep the law to be saved. Christ does his part and you do your part. See, I think that's what eating a raw Christ is. It's a Christ that doesn't finish the work of atonement. It's a Christ who cannot say it is finished. It's a Christ who cannot save you. Do you realize that the New Testament puts it in these terms that Christ either did all of the work necessary for you to be saved or he did none of it. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. No, this lamb had to be roasted. Do not eat it raw or boil it with water, verse 9, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. So the outside of the lamb was to be roasted and the inside, the inner parts of the lamb was to be roasted. Why? Because Christ suffered in his soul. Don't you see, dear friends, that that's where the fountainhead of our sin comes from. The fountainhead of our sin doesn't come from our fingers and our muscles and our bones. It comes from our heart. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Don't you see that all of those things that are in your heart, those things that you don't want anyone to see, those things that are, you are most ashamed of, those things that, that keep you awake at night, those things that make you look back at with, with regret, those came from your soul. And since that guilt came from your soul, Jesus had to suffer in his soul. That's what a substitute has to do. He has to pay for the full price, body and soul. 
And this roasted lamb was to be eaten in total. Look at verse 10. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. Spurgeon, I think, says it best here. He says, now this lamb they were to eat. They were to eat the whole of it. Not a morsel must be left. Oh, that you and I would never cut and divide Christ so as to choose one part of him and leave the other. Let us take in the whole Christ, prophet, priest, and king, Christ divine, Christ human, Christ loving and living, Christ dying, Christ risen, Christ ascended, Christ coming again, Christ triumphant over all his foes. The whole Lord Jesus Christ is ours. All of the lamb was to be eaten, and that is the lamb that we get, the whole lamb. And that brings us then to our second principle this morning. As we feast on the lamb of God by faith, we come into union with him. As we feast on the lamb of God by faith, we come into union with him. It's multiple times in the text. You have to eat the lamb. You have to eat the lamb. You have to eat the lamb. This sacrifice was a feast, a supper, a meal. Now we need to consider that carefully, don't we? God did not have to give us the function of eating. You know how much joy would be out of my life if God didn't give us eating? We were with a family the other night we were talking about this, and one of them said, yeah, God could have used photosynthesis to sustain us. It's cooking in the sun, right? Days like yesterday, that'd be miserable, wouldn't it? God could have sustained us without food altogether, without the means of food. He doesn't need those things to sustain us, but he chose that we would eat. He chose it. What does eating do? It brings you into union with that food. That food becomes bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh and cell of your cell. See, God wanted those Hebrews not only to enjoy the lamb with their taste buds and to be satisfied and filled with it, but they, he wanted them to know that they had to come into union with this lamb. That they were one now. Oh, beloved, that is what happened to us when we first believed. We came into a mystical union with Jesus Christ such that the Bible over and over and over again speaks about the Christian and Christ being one person. Not ontologically, but mystically. One person. Uh, he is the head. We are the body. We are his fullness, which fills all in all, Hebrew, or Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And this union is so intimate that Paul says things like this. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And, and this, what this union means is that whatever Christ personally accomplished, God counts that we actually accomplished it. Listen to the language. When Christ died, we also died with him. Colossians 3.3. 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. 
When Christ was buried, we were buried. Romans 6, 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. When Christ was raised, we were raised. Colossians 3, 1, you have been raised with Christ. And you know where Christ is right now, sitting in heaven? The Bible says that you're sitting in heaven with him. Ephesians 2, 6, God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's why we're supposed to feast. That's why they were supposed to feast on the lamb. God wanted them to see the infinitely precious gift that salvation is. Christ did not merely suffer for our sins. Christ forever united us to himself such that we can never be separated from him again. We are an inseparable part of Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. And you're wondering to yourself, what, is it, what must it be like to be a Christian? What must it be like to believe? Well, this is what it's like. It's like a feast. It's like coming into a banquet. These regenerate Jews were literally eating their freedom and their redemption in, they, in that meal, and they did that by faith. And dear unbelieving friend, that's what God is calling you to this morning to take Christ as your own by faith. Jesus said in John 6, 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is calling you to be united to him by faith. He's calling himself the true and better Passover lamb and he's offering himself to you freely. So receive him by faith. Don't be caught outside of the meal. Those who are outside of this meal were being cut down by the destroyer. But those who are on the inside, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, they are promised to forever feast off the abundance of his house and drink from the rivers of his delight. So that's our second point. So we feast on the Lamb of God by faith. We come into union. With Christ. Let's look finally at the Lamb who satisfied God. There are two little clauses in this account which anchor the whole passage. Look at the end of verse 11. What does it say? It is the Lord's Passover. And then look at the end of verse 12. I am the Lord. I think that's fascinating. God says in verse 11, eat this meal like this because it's my Passover. And then in verse 12, I will pass through, I will strike down, I will execute judgments because I am the Lord. What does that mean? Why these statements? John Currid answers in this way. Because 
the Passover is not primarily about the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. Nor is it mainly about the humiliation of Pharaoh and Egypt. Rather, the Passover's essential purpose is the glorification and exaltation of Yahweh. It is Yahweh's Passover. Beloved, we've seen what Christ's death accomplished for us who believe in Him. But what does Christ's death accomplish for God? How is it the Lord's Passover? How is this account mainly about God? That brings us to our third principle. God provided Christ as the Lamb so that all glory would go to Him alone. God provided Christ as the Lamb so that all glory could go to Him alone. It was God... Not man that was the supreme cause of Christ's death. Remember what Abraham told his son. The Lord himself will provide a lamb. This is the Lord's Passover. What we need to see here is that when God put forth Christ as the sacrificial lamb, God was actually solving the greatest crisis in the universe. God cannot save sinners and remain holy. That's the crisis. How can a sinner stand before a holy God? We get this so mixed up in our head, don't we? We get sidetracked and distracted with our jobs and with our families and with our bills and with all of the things of this life. And those things are, are good in themselves, but... We, we, we misunderstand what the greatest crisis is. The greatest crisis that every human being faces is not what I'm going to eat, not what I'm going to drink, not what I'm going to wear. It's not a political crisis. It's not economic. It's not inflation. It's not famine. The greatest crisis that every human being faces is how can I stand as a sinner before a holy God? And nothing else matters compared to this. You can gain the whole world and if this problem is not solved in your life, your life is forfeit. Jesus said, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is what puts Christianity absolutely apart from every other religion. No other religion can solve this. How can God, who is altogether holy, bring unholy things like you and I into his presence? Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous is altogether an abomination to the Lord. See, if God gives the wicked a pass, if he doesn't punish their sin, he is an abomination to himself. That's the greatest problem with religions like Islam. They teach that Allah lets sinners into heaven without punishing sin. And that's why Islam can be rejected on its face. Allah is not holy because he does not punish sin. This was the heart of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 3. Uh, 
Before Christ came into the world for 4,000 years, it looked like God was not going to punish sins. He promised paradise to his people, but where was the ultimate penalty? Yes, there were millions and millions of lambs that were slain, but we know that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove sin. So what did God do? What did God do to vindicate God? What did God do to ensure that everybody on earth knew that he was righteous and holy and good? Romans 3, 25 and 26, he put forward Christ as a propitiation, that means wrath-absorbing sacrifice, by his blood to be received by faith. Why did God do that? This was to show God's righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can sinners stand before a holy God? How can God remain just but still justify sinners? Christ alone. God solved the greatest crisis in the cosmos by sending Christ. It is the Lord's Passover. Someone might say here, but God is still unjust because that scripture says that he who condemns the righteous is an abomination. Christ was righteous and he was condemned for sinners. How do we answer that? Well, certainly it would be wrong to punish a righteous man for the sins of others if that man was unwilling and if that man had no authority from God to do so. But Christ was willing. Galatians 1.4 says he gave himself for our sins. Galatians 2.20 says he loved me and gave himself for me and he had the authority from God to lay down his life. John chapter 10, verse 18, I have authority to lay it down. This charge I received from my Father. God remained just in putting forward Christ because Christ was willing to die and he had the authority to do so. Christ the Lamb glorified God the Father because he became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And the Father glorified the Son by bringing many sons and daughters home to glory through his death. It is the Lord's Passover. The Passover showed that God is righteous. And the Passover showed that God is mercy. If you have either one of those things in isolation, you have nothing. And God has given you both in Christ. All glory be to God. And that is our charge this morning, loved ones. Our charge is to bring glory to God. Bring glory to God. Bring glory to God because the Lamb was punished for you. The Lamb suffered for you. You can say with all of the saints of old, in my place, condemned he stood. Christ did not offer you a half atonement. He accomplished all. He fulfilled all. He paid all. He was roasted in the fiery wrath of God's judgment for you. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Give glory to God. 
And when you first believed, this Christ came into union with you. Such that you are no longer just John. You are no longer just Susan. You are John in Christ. You are Susan in Christ. God looks at you in Christ mystically as the same person. He is your head. You are his body. Everything that Christ accomplished for you, God counts as you having accomplished. You have mercy because you have Christ. You have righteousness because you have Christ. You have the world because you have the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just... It's, it's so easy to come to your throne in prayer and be utterly speechless, have nothing to say, but to close our mouths and just be in awe of what you have done. Lord, that it was never a ceremony. It was never following a law that have saved your people. It was always this. It was always the lamb. It was always the lamb. And so we praise you. Please prepare us now, Lord, as we look to the meal, as we look to the bread and wine, that we would be nourished from mystical Christ by faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.